Father in heaven, you truly are great. That song is is true. And we pray and ask that now as we come to open your word, you would make your greatness known even more to us. That you would help us to behold and see. Help us to realize and acknowledge. We do also pray that our lives would be spent for your glory. That you would glorify and exalt your name through us. That we would be your ambassadors in this life, in this world. Making known the riches and glories of the gospel. If anything has been proven this morning, Lord, from the time that we have woken up to this moment, it is that we are entirely unable to control the day's events. We have no power within ourselves, no ability, no way to determine what happens next. So with that dependence and desperation, we ask that you would guard this time this morning. That you'd make your word the most compelling thing in our hearts and our minds. That your word would be brought forth in a way that your spirit would use to impact our souls. Help us to see you and be left in awe and wonder at you. For your glory and for our good in Jesus name. Amen. Please take your Bibles with me, if you would, and open them to the New Testament letter to the Colossians, a smaller letter in the kind of middle, latter part of the New Testament, just four chapters long. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. While you're turning there, let me start off by saying this morning that the most powerful picture we have of God in any place, in any shape, in any way, in any form, and certainly the most powerful picture of God that the Scriptures give us is that as Creator. When we consider God as Creator, we consider Him in His most authoritative, powerful position. It doesn't get higher than God as Creator. The Scriptures tell us, specifically in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but also in numerous other places, that God merely breathes out the created universe. It's a way to define and describe God's power at work in bringing things into existence. In Genesis chapter 1, we find the often noted and repeated phrase, God said such and such, and then it happened. Without issue, without difficulty, without question, God speaks, and the sun comes forth, and the dry land comes forth, and the universe is put into order in what the Bible seemingly describes as a moment. In Romans chapter 4, the last part of verse 17, Paul describes this phenomenon of creation, specifically as he's describing God. And in the last part of verse 17, he says, God is the one who gives life to the dead 
And then one of my favorite descriptions calls into existence the things that do not exist. We know what that verse means because of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and other creation accounts and verses that deal with creation in the Bible. We have an idea of what Paul means there, but really as we consider it in a uh, maybe a scientific light or a philosophical kind of light, we have no real category for what Paul is saying. What does it mean to call into existence something that's never existed? What does it mean for something to have existence when nothing has ever had existence? What does it mean to call into existence when existence doesn't exist itself? Our minds cannot comprehend and wrap, wrap themselves around this power of creation. This breathing forth the magnitude of the cosmos and the universe and even the small details of molecules and atoms. Thus we can adequately say, church, that there is no power like the power that can create something out of nothing. And that is our God. He's not a puny God. Not a limited God. Not an unconcerned God. He is a powerful, creating God who creates something out of nothing. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, really is classical breakthrough book. In the first chapter, he's trying to lay down a foundation for the magnitude of God and the splendor of God and the glory of God, and he touches very briefly on the fact that God is creator and Just a snippet of what he says is this. He says, Our understanding of creativity involves the shaping and forming of paint, clay, notes on paper, or some other substance. In our experience, we have not been able to find a painter who paints without paint, or a writer who writes without words, or a composer who composes without notes. Artists must start with something. What artists do is shape, form, or rearrange other materials, but they never work with nothing. St. Augustine taught that God created the world out of nothing. Creation was something like the magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Except God didn't have a rabbit, and He didn't even have a hat. What Sproul is highlighting there is uh, simple enough and yet profoundly true. When we consider creativity, an artist creating a painting or a um, composer creating a musical piece or even a director creating a movie, they're starting with pre-existing material. But here is God described in the Scriptures starting with nothing. There is no pre-existent material. There is no form to reshape and rearrange and mold There's simply nothing and then God speaks. What kind of power must that be for God to breathe forth, call things into existence that do not exist? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, the author of Hebrews writes it this way. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. 
what we experience and what we know and what, what we taste and, and what we smell and, and the things that we are part that are a part of our lives, the creation you and I live in doesn't come from things that we know. It doesn't come from pre existent things. It comes out of nothing. The latter chapters of the book of Job in the Old Testament. God is rebuking Job. He's calling Job to account for all the accusations and questions that he's leveled against God and it's really a very fearful, frightening, striking rebuke from God, but also incredibly fascinating because God looks at Job and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And have you seen the storehouses of the, the snow and the storehouses of the hail and the storehouses of the lightning and, and who makes it thunder and who feeds the mountain goat and, and, and on and on and on and on and God so makes it so abundantly clear that there is no one like me who breathes things into existence and sustains them. Yet again, in Re Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we find the elders around the throne of God casting down their crowns and worshiping Him. And a major part of their worship deals with the fact that God is Creator. They say this, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. You're worthy. You're worthy of worship. You're worthy of praise. You're worthy of adoration. You're worthy of reverence. You're worthy of the, the highest esteem and exaltation we can bestow on You. And why? Because You are the Creator. And being the Creator, there is none like You. No one possesses Your power. No one possesses Your magnitude. No one possesses Your transcendence. No one possesses Your... your Massive ability to orchestrate every minor detail. We have the good grace of God to have His Word. To know something of His character and His attributes and His wonder. Things like love and mercy and compassion and kindness. Things we, we like to think upon about God. But even if we didn't know all of those things, by the pure fact that God alone is Creator means He's worthy of all worship. I want you to have your minds, in your minds right now this morning, that this God that you and I relate to and know and believe in and sing to and praise and, and confess is far beyond what you and I can comprehend and hold in our minds. We are specks of dust that God breathed forth in the beginning. His magnitude and glory and might is infinitely beyond you and I. We might often take the creation account for granted. We might not give it much consideration in our day-to-day -day lives or in our Bible study. We might even acknowledge that God is Creator, but then move on to other what we might call weightier doctrines or thoughts. But the truth of the matter is that the Scriptures never treat the creation of the universe by the Word of God as a light or a trivial matter. The Scriptures always speak of God creating as His most powerful moment 
as the display of His worth. As the communication of His divine and supernatural nature. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we know this text, but let me flip over and read it to get it accurately. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, the Bible is telling us, look at the grandeur and complexity and glory and intricacy of all of creation and then be struck with the grandeur of God. The magnitude of God, the power of God, the authority of God. It's all because of those things. I share all of that to come back to say this. The most powerful picture you and I have of God the most comprehensive picture of all of God's authority and might is creation. And then we come to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. You know what we discover in verse 15, 16, and 17? That all of creation is bound up in Jesus. As we survey the, the Scriptures, we find creation, the account of creation, the moment of creation is elevated to this most high and lofty position that dictates our, not only our accountability, but even our worship to God, that He is worthy and worth that worship and, and reverence and fear and submission and all of those sorts of things. And then we come to consider this power of God is seen in His Son, Jesus. What we come to consider in verse 15, 16, and 17 today is that creation finds both its existence and its purpose in Jesus. And the goal of Paul and my goal and the goal of this passage is for you to be confronted with such a high view of Jesus that it informs the rest of your understanding of God, Christ, Christianity, your own life. This Jesus that we belong to, that we relate to, that we call Lord, that we pray to, that we sing, He is the powerful Creator God. As we highlighted last week, Paul is elevating Christ in the eyes of the Colossian Christians to protect them from false teaching. And we know it to be true that if we get Christ wrong, we get everything else wrong. If we slack on Jesus... All kinds of false teaching will creep in. As our friend Calvin said, we highlighted last week, if we want to protect ourselves from error in doctrine and in practice, then we must have a right understanding of Jesus and keep Him in His proper place and constantly view Him there. And that is exactly what Paul is doing. Last week we looked at the first part of verse 15 where Paul says of Jesus, he says He is the image of the invisible God. So we considered our Lord's relationship to God Himself, understanding that God or that Jesus is God Himself. He reveals to us God, uh, makes God known, makes God relatable. Today, as we consider the last part of verse 15 and verse 16 and 17, we'll consider Christ's relationship to all of creation. 
that this most impactful, massive universe that you and I exist in is held together, brought about, finds its purpose in Jesus. Look in verse 15, 16, and 17. Actually, let's read through verse 20, but keep in mind 16, 17, and 15 are our main text this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent or supreme. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let me say again, the Scriptures paint creation and God creating in the highest view and esteem possible. And Paul is clearly, unmistakably intending to connect Christ into that picture so that you might walk away with the highest esteem and view of Christ possible. The first thing to consider is in the last part of verse 15 that Jesus ranks above creation. He ranks above creation in the list of priorities and the list of value and the list of worth and the list of glory and the list of supremacy. In the early parts of church history, there was a man named Arius, who was the namesake of a group of people who followed his teaching called Arians. His particular teaching became known as Arianism. Surprise. This man, Arius, looked at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and he concluded, and eventually by the church was declared a heretic, but he concluded that Jesus was the first created being. And in the being the first created being, that is where he had his supremacy. That he was preeminent and supreme and glorious because he was the first thing God spoke into existence, not because he was divine in himself. Essentially, what Arius was saying is that Jesus was inferior to God. Jesus was dependent upon God, breathed out by God like everything else that you and I experience, and thus lower than God. This is a major false teaching for for a number of reasons, but some good things came out of it. The good things were the major Christological considerations that the church had never really considered before or wrestled through before. So the church got together in various councils and they began to wrestle with this teaching that Jesus was created and not eternal and, and what the implications of that teaching might mean. And again, they came to classify Arianism as a heretical teaching and out of that came the classic church confession called the Nicene Creed, which explicitly states concerning our Lord, it says this, that Jesus is the one Lord Jesus 
the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And then it says this, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This is a major point for us as a church to understand. If we look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and conclude that Jesus was a created being, then we also lower Him and make Him underneath God and thus not divine. And if we make Jesus not divine, then we have to call our own salvation into question. Was the cross satisfactory? Was the resurrection satisfactory? Was His perfect life satisfactory? If we get Jesus wrong, we get everything wrong. And if we lower Jesus to being a created individual, our whole faith begins to crumble, church. Arius is saying and believed the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul is writing in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The hang-up for most people is that word firstborn. That's the word that Arius capitalized on. And he said, if he's the firstborn of all creation, then that must mean he's the first created thing that came from God. And only in that does he have supremacy. We have to ask the question, what does Paul really mean by that word? What exactly is Paul saying? How do we defend that Jesus is not a created being from that singular verse? Well, by God's grace, the Bible uses that terminology and language in several other places. In Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, that word and language and terminology is used about King David. God is speaking in Psalm 89, verse 27, and He says this about David. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, if we take that to be literal, firstborn, we have some problems. Number one, the problem is David wasn't the firstborn of his family. He was the last of the sons of his father. Secondly, it's kind of confusing. Why would God and how would God make David the firstborn in the middle of his life? David's already been born and he's living. How can he then become the firstborn? What is God getting at? What is Paul saying? What does the Scripture mean when it uses this word Firstborn, it uses it not in a literal sense. David is not a literal firstborn. He's a metaphorical firstborn. The answer is in verse 27 is that God makes him the highest of the kings of the earth. Here's what I'm saying. The Bible uses this term firstborn to denote supremacy and honor and respect. We find it used of the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 4. If you look in Exodus chapter 4, let me get my reference right. Verse 22 and 23, God says this, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. 
If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Exact same terminology, exact same word, exact same phrasing. God says Israel is my firstborn son. Well, number one, we know he's not talking about Jacob because Jacob also was not the firstborn son. Esau was born before Jacob. The nation of Israel can't be a firstborn son, literally, because it's a group of people, not a singular individual. Again, God uses this word metaphorically. Israel is the nation that I have chosen out of all the other nations to be set apart, to be mine, to be esteemed with high honor and respect, to be supreme. All of that to come back to say Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it's not uncommon for Paul to use the same tactics we find in other places of Scripture. The firstborn is the one who had the inheritance. And thus the one who had the respect and honor that they were due. Jacob is considered the firstborn, even though Esau was the literal firstborn. What Paul is saying here of Christ is that he has all the honor and respect that is due the most supreme one, the firstborn. In verse 17, he says it a different way. He is before all things. That doesn't just mean in his pre-existence. That means in his rank and his superiority. Essentially what Paul is saying, church, that you and I need to have concreted in our theology and our understanding of God. He's saying there is no one and nothing greater than Jesus. False teachings abound. They threaten every church like they threaten this Colossian church. They threaten our church and they will threaten our church. And just like the Ephesian church and the Colossian church and the Corinthian church and the churches in Revelation, they'll come from both outside and inside the church. And you know what the number one thing is concerning all false teaching? It's devaluing Jesus. That His work isn't enough. His sacrifice isn't enough. His teaching isn't enough. His grace isn't enough. So you need works. You need secret knowledge. You need to earn favor. You need to do this and that and this and that and on and on and on. That is nothing less than devaluing Jesus. And if we are going to stand firm in the Christian faith, we have to get this first point nailed down and never let it change in our hearts and our minds and our practice. There is absolutely nothing greater than Jesus. Our name isn't greater than Jesus. Your marriage isn't greater than Jesus. Your children aren't greater than Jesus. Your finances aren't greater than Jesus. Oh, if we need to know anything from verse 15 this morning, it is that Christ ought to occupy a place in our hearts that no one else could ever occupy. And Christ ought to be viewed with our hearts in a way that no one else could be viewed. And in a way that nothing else could be viewed. He is supreme over all creation. He is there before creation. His supremacy exists, let me just say real quickly, in two ways. First, in the fact that He is pre-existent. 
and then in His nature as being preexistent. So Paul tells us He is supreme over all creation because He existed before all creation. Which is a phenomenal thought. Before a drop of creation existed. Before a, a, a ray of light is spoken from the mouth of God. Before one single atom or molecule is brought into being, Jesus is there. We get a, a beautiful glimpse of this in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying right before the cross. John chapter 17, verse 5, He prays this, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There out of the, the very mouth of our Lord is His own recollection of what it was like to exist before anything else ever existed. And it's in harmony with the Godhead and in glory with the Godhead and in complete and total contentment and satisfaction to the point that in verse 5 He says, I want that to be be true again. I want the glory I had with you before the world existed. Before a thing, single thing was spoken. Our minds cannot really grasp that. We're bound by time. We are the created. It's hard to, in our minds, get before the beginning. But it's not for Jesus. He totally was fully there existing apart from creation. That, that tells us Christ isn't dependent on creation, is He? Paul's going to go on later and say he's, that creation is made for Him. Not Him for us. Secondly, Christ is supreme over all creation. Simply by His nature. Not only does He exist before all creation, but in existing before all creation, He must therefore be God Himself. Just as we highlighted last week, if He's the image of the invisible God, He must also therefore be God. For no created thing could resemble God. So here's Christ, who stands alone as God Himself. Only God can exist with God and only God can exist before all other things. He Himself is the God of all creation. So that as we look to Jesus, we attribute to Him the same equal worth, power, adoration, reverence, honor, as we do to God. When we read in the other places of the Bible how, how Scripture elevates God as Creator, as the most powerful being, supreme over all things, we look and say that is equally true of Jesus. You and I, church, we can look to the most grand and glorious features of creation. We can look at the beautiful sunset or the starry night sky. Calvin said we can look at every blade of grass and be confronted with just how much more glorious God Himself is. At every turn, you and I are not without a picture reminding us 
of the masterful glory of God, of the beauty of our Creator, of His supreme authority that nothing in all of existence, both visible and invisible, exists apart from His will, apart from His desire, apart from His work of bringing it about. Every moment of every day in the five senses we've been given with our eyeballs, with our taste buds, with our, our noses smelling, with our ears hearing, with, with feeling the different textures of this created order, we are reminded constantly that God is better. God is greater and God is far, far more glorious. And you know what Paul says? That is fully seen and recognized and known in Jesus Himself. I want to go on through the rest of this because it, it, it all goes together. It connects and it just gets better and better and better. But let me just come to this point of saying this this morning. If Christ is more glorious and more powerful and more beautiful and more wondrous and more magnificent and majestic than all other things in creation, if all the glory, worth, and power that we attribute to God the Creator should be attributed to Jesus the Creator, then don't you think that determines how we relate to Him? Absolutely. I want you to understand in your mind and in your heart for a moment. Here's the one who exists apart from creation, independent of creation, before creation, who exists as very God of very God, looks into creation and says, I will step into creation and die for creation. This magnificent, majestic, glorious, powerful Creator looks on sinners who do not deserve love and says, I will still love them. Looks at us in our helpless state and in the darkness of our existence. And with all that worth, still says, I will be nailed to a cross. I will shed my blood and I will give myself as a ransom and I will pay for their rightful wrath, rightfully deserved wrath. I'll pay the penalty. I'll take their debt and I'll nail it to the cross along with myself. That church is phenomenal to me. I ask myself, what kind of power must it be to just breathe forth stars? And then I have to equally ask myself, what kind of love must it be to possess that power and then humble yourself to the point of death for sinful creatures? The love of God, the power of God, all of those things are far greater than I. And I struggle as one who is supposed to communicate the uncommunicable, who is supposed to communicate the infinite. I struggle putting that into words with you. I trust that you are following along with the Spirit's help in your heart to just contemplate even ever so slightly the grandeur and magnificence of God and that He would humble Himself for you. And that just maybe you would be struck in your own heart and mind with how big of a deal that is. Not only does that inform us about God's love towards sinners and His willingness to save sinners 
But that therefore informs how we are to follow Him as His creation, as His people. Simply put, we don't tell God what to do. We don't have the position to give God an ultimatum. The only position we are in in relation to God is to be obedient. This is the Creator of the universe we relate to. This is the One who speaks all things into existence. And you and I have no right ever to question or say no. The only rightful response to understanding Christ in this way as supreme above the most grand and glorious and magnificent thing we can behold with our eyes and our hearts and our minds, the only way to respond to Him is yes, Lord. Your will be done. It means if you claim to follow this Lord, you follow Him wholeheartedly. It means if you believe in this Lord, you submit to Him wholeheartedly. There's a, a quote that's been scrolling on our screens for the last couple of weeks by R.C. Sproul. He says, we don't segment our lives. God can have this part, but I keep this part. When we relate to this God, when we follow this Jesus, He's, he's not this genie created for our pleasure and our benefit. We completely submit every area of our lives to Him. We've highlighted it before and in church we must always highlight it. He has every bit of our finances. He has our career. He has our grades. He has our relationships. He has our family. On and on and on and on. Every area of our life is surrendered to Him. We don't casually, half-heartedly relate to this Jesus. There's no such thing as just dabbling and mingling in this Jesus. This is the Jesus who is the Lord of all things. The Lord over all creation, visible and invisible. And to follow Him means to surrender everything to Him. The question becomes now, have you tasted of the kind of love that He shows in humbling Himself to the cross? And have you surrendered your life to Him to the point of following Him as He rightly deserves to be followed? I was thinking this week, Lord, this isn't just a message for Christians. This is a message for the whole world. It doesn't matter if people believe in God or not. He's still the God of all creation. It doesn't matter if they acknowledge Him as Lord over creation or not. He's still the Lord of all creation. It doesn't matter if they want to follow Him or not. He still deserves to be submitted to. It doesn't matter if you want to follow Him or not. It doesn't matter if our church wants to follow Him or not. He is the all-supreme, all-glorious, all-powerful Lord of all creation. And that includes our lives in every single detail. Have you tasted of this love that is almost uncomprehensible? Where this Creator God in all of His might and glory and power would die for you. Have you tasted that love? Have you come to experience that love? Have you surrendered your life to this Lord in a way that He deserves? Have you demonstrated His worth by giving Him every single area of your existence? That might seem daunting, but that's what we're called to. 
And in all of God's goodness and grace, that is where we find the most satisfaction. That's where we find the most pleasure. That's where we find what it means to have an abundant life. Is in completely submitting ourselves to our Lord. The good news is, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Which means why God's mercy is still extended, you may taste that kind of love that we've talked about. The love of an all-powerful Creator humbling Himself for people who don't deserve it, who are guilty of sinning against Him, yet who He wants to forgive of that sin. You can experience that love right now by simply asking God for forgiveness and trusting in Jesus' work. Believing the promise of God that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Christian, you can begin surrendering your life now in a way that totally acknowledges the worth of Christ. Lord Jesus, You are worth far more than I could ever give. And You are greater than far, far more greater than I could ever acknowledge or comprehend. You deserve every area of my life. My answer to You must be yes. Lord, help it be yes. That should be our cry.